Welcome to the Smart City Podcast, the technology program that looks at how buildings, communities, and cities are becoming smarter, more efficient, and more connected. We look at everything from the big ideas to drilling down to individual projects and innovative ideas that impact your day-to-day life. The Smart City Podcast is brought to you by Locomobi World, moving the world through sustainable, frictionless, and secure solutions. This is episode number 59, recorded on August 16th, 2023. Getting around a city is complicated. There are drivers and cyclists, a growing number of electric scooters, pedestrians, delivery vehicles, public transit. Getting everything and everyone to move smoothly is an increasing challenge. We're going to speak with William Muller about his company, Soul Robotics, and the technology that they're deploying to make everything work better. First, though, we'd better check in with Grant for some tech news. What have you got? You remember Transformers. I mean, remember, we all lived it. What, the, the Michael Bay stuff? Yeah, well, you, you know where the Transformers were? Even they had even a lot of movies where they sat in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They operated the whole thing and moved up and down. And, okay, so I have some great news for you. You can buy one. You can buy an actual Transformer. It's 15 feet high. You sit in it. It has a cockpit. And it changes. It actually can transform into other things, a car and so on. And and it's got a wheel-based platform. Um, you can increase and decrease the height, stretch it out. Um, it's it's a real transformer, that like the ones you see in the movies. And you can drive it down the street. You can do whatever you want. Um, it's not legal. Wait, wait, wait. Who would do this and why? Well, well, that's good. It's for the guy who has everything. <laughs> now, Brett. Like it's only two point seven five million. Oh well, hell. There's a top speed of six miles an hour. Uh-huh. And can you imagine this fifteen foot transformer coming down a sidewalk or through a park? And it looks like a real transformer. And you know, just like the guy sitting there, remember in in the movies, um, shooting things and all the arms work, the legs work, has cameras, everything. And and, and it's only two point seven five million. It's just a matter of time before they have a showroom in Dubai. You, I'm telling you, and it's made in Japan, which mm. kind of is robot capital, I would, I think. Um, so uh, I, I just think it's pretty incredible. And so I won't be ordering one soon, but but it, we're going to see them. You know we are. I'll pass. Thank you. No, look, come on. Well, you know we're going to see them. Military. Oh, I don't yes. Say it. Come on. Come on. Well, you know, we, we kind of heard something about this back when it was, um, I, it was Sigourney Weaver in Alien 2, when she had that big um, exoskeleton machine for moving stuff around the payload bay of the spacecraft. Oh, yeah. And same with what he called in all his movies. Um, um, you know, um, the movie with uh, where he goes into the, into the um, metaverse and lives in a different world. Um, I can't think of Oh, with Avatar. Yeah. I mean, there's all kinds. And and I think it's going to happen. It's already happened, but it, you know where it's going um, because the Miller can afford it. And I'm sure they're all over it. But I just thought I'd bring it up. Um, you know, the Matrix had them in the wars. Remember, they climbed in them. They went out and fought everyone. Right. In the, in the, in the Transformers. But these ones here actually go low, high, though. They can retransform. You're still in the seat. Okay. I'll pass. Okay. Next. From, from the fun stuff to a more serious thing. Um, so we know that bridges, um, even engines, um, anything major like that, they develop cracks. And then when they crack in the infrastructure, you replace them. What if they could 
essentially just heal themselves. I read about this self-healing concrete. No, no, no. I know that. No, this is that's already done. Self-healing steel. Oh. So what scientists found, and this is, uh, I will tell you this, they found this out of fluke, that um, when metals um, can actually repair themselves. You know, they already use it in concrete, uh, bioplastic, um, lots of ceramics, um, lots of stuff, but never this. This is big. So when they were looking at something, they noticed that when they went into a microscope, they saw this piece of metal that was fatigued slowly tie itself, mess it, mend itself back together. And so what they're trying to do is how far can they go with this, okay? So um, with the microscope, of course, they go so deep, they can see everything, okay? But they actually saw a small section of a damaged piece of, of, of metal repair itself. Just like skin, just like a skin heals a cut. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, you got to understand something. This is, this is all now looking at it on a nanoscale. But think, of, uh, we know how everything works. If this came to fruition, which I believe somehow it will, because not because it's far-fetched, because we seem to do everything these days with AI, the new metal that gets built could last forever. Structures, homes, engines would last forever. There'd be no cracks. There'd be, it always know when to repair itself. Um, and it makes sense, but I never knew you could ever do it. So I thought that was a, a, a pretty interesting um, uh, a new development. And I'm going to watch it closely. I wonder what the structural molecular crystalline process, but what's involved. That's, that's really interesting. It is. I mean, I'd like to see it. I'd like to find a video, even if it's in slow, mo you know, in a in a slowed down motion, because I'm sure that camera's going at speeds you could never see. Mm -hmm. But when you slow it down, it's pretty cool to watch it. All right, probably well, take 40, 50 minutes, but it'd be pretty pretty amazing. Self so I think it's really cool. Self healing steel. Okay, we'll watch for that. Okay, um, you know about all these developments, but I want to talk about a particular one. So, um. There's this new thing that scientists at Monash University created called Dish Brain. So it's a semi-biological uh, computer chip that has about 800,000 human and mouse brain cells, lab-grown oh. in electrons. Okay, uh, this is creepy. I know. Then they hooked the brain up and it learned on someone how to play Pong. It was capable of reading activity like the heart and stimulating electrical signals. So think of a person that could never have walked, could never have done You could implant this into their head and it would operate like the brain. Now, I mean, I gotta tell you, this is like, wow. I mean, this is like beyond. Um, and by the way, the implant looks like you, like a big piece of flesh with electrodes on it. So a, a bio-powered computer chip. Yes. Or bio-based computer it, chip. And it works and stimulates the brain cells as well as all the electrodes that operate the infrastructure of the body. That's all we are is a bunch of, as you know, electrodes. Mm -hmm. um, and what they did, though, without hooking up to human, they hooked it up to, to Pong and it learned on its own how to play Pong. On its own? I know. 
I know. It's like, it's crazy. Well, um, you, you know, if, I, if I'm a neuron or a synapse sitting in a dish with a bunch of mouse <laughs> neurons, I'm going to be bored too. And I'm going to try and figure out things to do with my time as I lie there in the still solution um, of protein. With and AI food. and programmable AI chips, you know, obviously we're going to be able to do anything. Um, and from my standpoint, again, um, I was pretty shocked and pretty amazed. So that's my three of the day. I've heard of biochips before, but I didn't realize that they had been advanced that far. Well, neither did I. And um, to say that now you can implant really a brain. Just think of this. Uh, Elon Musk is probably all over this already. I mean, because it's simulating hundreds of thousands of the same signals because there's millions. Hmm. But I mean, they started. I mean, um, you could take a small section and help the brain. You know, I don't know. I'm, I'm just not suggesting that, uh, that we can do it today, but you, you know, it's going to come and it could come for good for humanity. So just a matter of time. Keeping everything and everyone moving in an urban area is becoming increasingly complex. More vehicles and people on the road, choke points, the lack of real time data about what's actually happening. Seoul Robotics, a company based out of South Korea, has some solutions. We spoke with William Muller, the Vice President of Business Development. So, William, let's let's begin by talking about uh, you and your company. Uh, let's let's go through it from the top. Yeah, sure. So, um, obviously, uh, great to be here, having a conversation with you guys, and to share a little more about Seoul Robotics. So, Seoul Robotics was founded in 2017 um, as a 3D software perception company with the focus and the intent to create um, LiDAR or 3D sensor-based perception only for autonomous vehicles. So when the, founder, the, when the founders originally started the company, the goal was to see you know, how, well, actually before they even started the company, they were part of a Udacity challenge. And in this challenge is where they met each other totally on, off, uh, online, uh, never met each other in person, and and in the challenge, their goal was to essentially push this uh, 3D sensing technology as far as, as far as they could during the challenge, using only uh, 3D sensor data. So the goal at that point was the big hype, the big drive around the autonomous vehicle and the software on autonomous vehicles, and and uh, you, and sort of uh, paving that path forward. Fast forward a, a couple of years uh, uh, from there, the what we kind of, what the founders kind of realized, or of SolarWorks, is that the software has a lot of other potential possibilities. So fundamentally, it came from trying to create this perception software for automotive vehicles. However, we quickly realized that the insights that and the accuracy and the value this technology brings to other verticals is is uh, highly valuable as well. And never mind the fact that. The path for autonomous vehicles was still a little ways away. It was still going through iterations of uh, trying to define the hardware, trying to define how the software was going to work. Was the software going to be developed by the automakers? Was the software going to be made by private companies? How was that all going to eventually kind of coexist? So business had to move on. We had to figure out with what we developed, what else can be done with the technology? We kind of quickly realized that a really good fit for the technology was within the smart spaces, bringing insights with a high level of accuracy within these smart spaces where normally traditional technologies are either things like uh, 
camera sensors or uh, uh, Bluetooth type sensors or 3D stereo type cameras. Um, <clears throat> and the bigger challenge with that kind of technology, which we've actually come to realize um, today, is that there is a big privacy issue regarding with regarding that technology. Um, there's a lot of access to biometrical data. So obviously, if there's Bluetooth, Wi-Fi tracking, you know the user information, you know who the user is, you kind of know everything about that mobile device that, that user might be using. So often when you go into a shopping mall and use the shopping mall's Wi-Fi, you click and you're pretty much opting into that shopping center tracking, right? Looking at where you're going and what you're doing in that shopping center. And of course, that presents a, a level of risk. And the same applies for camera technology. It, it has its place, but of course, you're seeing all this biometric data and all this biometric information of these users moving through the city streets or moving through these private businesses and so forth. So, so that was one thing that we re- that we figured out that this 3D sensing technology actually overcomes. Um, there is zero biometric data. We just know you're an object being classified, but we cannot tell what color you are, how old you are. Uh, we cannot tell your ethnicity. None of that information is available through the system. Purely you're allocated a classification saying you're a human and you get given a number and the same with the vehicles and the same with the cycles that we detect. So I kind of jumped ahead a little bit, but I just wanted to highlight this is one critical component that I think is a big topic for most smart cities and even most ITS type applications is that we want to have insights, we want to understand things, but you know, this privacy is a big issue. So going back to the use case and how we landed where we landed today, we we, we actually met with um, uh, the first customer was, I met with City of Chattanooga probably about five years ago um, when I was working for a lot on manufacturer and um, they came up to our booth and said, hey, we've got this great idea. We've got this research, giant sandbox play area. We want to put all these different sensors into the city, and uh, this is the city of Chattanooga. We want to try and figure out what we can, you know, what all can be tested in this test bed. Um, however, we've got limited funding. Nobody really cared about the little old Chattanooga sitting in, in, in Tennessee. Um, nobody kind of understood what they were trying to do, but we sort of, Took a go at it. We said, okay, let's let's figure out. We, we had no idea what we were going to do with the technology. We we just knew that we'd get insights and what solutions or what problems those insights would, would either create or solve. Um, and we went ahead. We got a two-intersection deployment underway, got, agreed to put everything in place, and sort of fast forward after about six months of the technology being in place, the, the, the city... Uh, city traffic management department itself, <clears throat> a gentleman by the name of Kevin Comstock, came back to us and said, wait a minute, guys, this is really incredible what we're seeing in the city, the, the, especially the insights into pedestrians and into the vulnerable road users because most technologies can can obviously tell you that there's humans or that's a pedestrian, but the fact of knowing how they are moving and how they are uh, behaving within the city environment is very reactive with legacy technologies. It has, hasn't got much ability to become a proactive uh, or a preemptive type of technology based on, on measurement capabilities that this 3D technology brings to the city. So we, we quickly realized that, you know, there's a big drive right now, Vision Zero. Um, this is all about trying to keep pedestrians and the public safe in the city. And this technology fit the the space very uh, 
very well. And as an example, what one of the tests that they they ran in that city and what they tried to work with there is they said, well, we know that when you go and prepare to cross a road, you, you either push a button or there's a pressure plate of some sort or something, a camera sometimes even detects that you're there. But there is no technology that has the ability to measure your absolute location. Meaning that there's, <clears throat> if that call is placed to cross a road, they just preset a timer and they hope that everybody can make it across the road or across the street within that predefined time that's set when you push that button. But that doesn't take into consideration a mother pushing a stroller. That doesn't take into consideration uh, a, a handicapped individual. It doesn't take into consideration the elderly. And quite often you'd find that, you know, people are midway through their crossing and, you know, suddenly a life changes. That This causes an issue of potential, uh, you know, somebody being hit by a vehicle. Uh, you know, people normally just look at the lights and when the light changes, they, they hit the gas and try and cross the road. So this technology has the ability to know that absolute location of individuals because it, by, by nature, uh, the, the sensor that we use in the perception is a LIDAR sensor and it is a measurement instrument. It's, it's known for high accuracy than centimeter level of accuracy of knowing where objects are moving within a three dimensional space. So you can tell the size, the speed, the trajectory, the velocity, and all this good stuff about these objects that you're tracking. That then translates to the ability to either do a couple of things, add more time to a lot to allow these people to complete their their, uh, crossing process. It allows you to reallocate priority back to traffic. So instead of you keeping traffic waiting and nobody's crossing the road, you can actually give priority back to traffic to increase the flow and, and, and reduce the congestion in the traffic environments. You could also understand what's the behavior. Um, you know, things like how often is there an instance where a vehicle and a pedestrian come too close together and that could be considered a near miss? Or how often uh, do you know where these objects are, are not crossing where they're supposed to be crossing, right? Are they crossing irregularly? Do we, do we take an action of, putting law enforcement there to try and mitigate these issues. So these insights were all becoming very possible with, with the city. And the city quickly jumped onto this and started add, adding it into kind of the da- their data science center and started studying this information. Um, and uh, what what we kind of went to the next step from there is that now we've, we get insights of pedestrians but with the whole greener initiative and the whole modern city initiative, we're adding another element into the cities, and that's these electrified scooters and cyclists. Um, a lot of big uh, modern, or not even big, not even I would say just modern cities, but most big cities now are starting to transition from trying to get people out of the vehicles and get them onto bicycle, onto bicycles, or into electrified scooters, or, or on foot, or on public transportation. Now. How on earth do you try and, uh, so the cities came and said, well, how on earth do we try and determine the cyclists? That's a new dynamic into a city that we never prepared for. We're going to start being putting in these cycle lanes. We're going to start having, uh, roads that are, might become too narrow and can't have a dedicated cycle lane where vehicles and cyclists might converge or they might move apart. Vehicles might go into cycle lanes. And this technology also enabled those insights because we could differentiate those three elements, vehicles, bikes, and pedestrians. 
And each of those elements, we also have all the metadata that goes with it. So you could start doing the measurement, the speed, the trajectories, the velocities, the length, the height, the width. All of that information is all uh, uh, kind of additional information that's available in the system that allows you to bring other analytical aspects to to your uh, your smart city or your ITS type environment. And um, what we noticed also with this type of approaches is especially in European cities, during the pandemic time, they took that opportunity to remove a lot of uh, vehicle lanes and suddenly add these bicycle lanes into cities and adding this huge amount of congestion. And bike lanes are only busy at certain times just like HOV style of lanes in, in major freeways at any certain times or those being highly occupied by vehicles or other directions might take priority at different times. But again, it added to congestion and the whole the whole lifestyle of living in these major cities became complex because now you're actually adding another level of congestion just because you're taking roads away from cars and you're giving them to cyclists and something starts feeling stress at that point. And normally it's going to be the motorists trying to travel through the cities. Then, of course, you add these vehicles crossing the lanes into cycle lanes and you add find these conversion, co- convergence points where the vehicles and the cyclists uh, potentially have conflict areas. This technology was able to understand that behavior and also figure out plans to be able to uh, mitigate it. So <clears throat> there's actually active deployments for this in Salzburg, Austria, that is doing a specific uh, deployment. They have shared lane cyclists vehicles and they converge and there's been a study been going on there for the last 12 months to understand what's the impact on both the city uh, vehicle movements as well as how often these injuries are taking place so these are a lot of typical use cases we find in this technology coming in about the the company and you know where it came from and where it's kind of landed today the the thing that is interesting is that the same technology that was developed for autonomous vehicles is still the same core technology that is used for this these use cases. So why why did I jump from that to this? It, it, is that this has positioned <clears throat> this technology to become accessible to the next big step, which is going to be V2X or X2V, where connected vehicles and connected technologies are going to be in a position to ingest this data us understanding the vehicle perception needs, as well as understanding the city insights and the way the cities behave from an ICS perspective allows an easier adoption or integration of this technology to enable these advanced safety systems with these connected vehicles that are going to be coming in the future, which I believe is going to be the first initial step before full autonomy starts hitting the streets. All right, because now now you have the technology to solve the trolley problem. Precisely. I see. Okay. Very. So, and this, I mean, right now you're working with flow and movement, but with this technology, you can integrate vehicles, bicycles, electric vehicles, pedestrians, people in wheelchairs, mothers with strollers, all into one model. Yes? Exactly. Exactly. And so, so let's say I want to know who they are. Let's say I need to know all the cars that went through. I have to know them. I have to identify them. And the police, how do you do it? So there is, within the system, there's event-based triggers. Um, So I'll just take it to a a more specific type of use case. So think of uh, high-speed tolling. Yep. 
so traditionally for them to do the billing or to be able to say, hey, you've got to pay something, they're using a ground inductive ground loop buried in the ground to trigger a camera to take uh, Actually, no, no, they're not. They are in some cases, but they're using motion and computer imaging um, in live time. So how would you, like what I'm trying to figure out is, I like what you're doing, but I, I need to understand, like I get the security side, but that's more cybersecurity and that's easy to, um, to identify and fix. But let's say I got 15 cars going through the intersection. I want to ticket them all. How does your system capture that? So as I, as I was alluding to, the system is event-driven. So every one of these sure. event zones, we call them event zones in the system. So we have an lim- unlimited amount of event zones that are fully three-dimensional event zones. So those can be event zones that are direction-based. Those can be event zones that are simply trigger zones to say, if it receives data that a light is green, it can then trigger a camera feed to say, okay, take a snapshot. Somebody's jumped the red light. Oh, well, she needed a camera as well to do that. Well, yes, because remember, there's no biometric data. Ah, okay. So, so you, you, you're obviously using it to trigger specific events and happenings rather than taking continuous recordings. So that would be one benefit of it. Gotcha. Um, and, and as I mentioned, as I was alluding to on, on these event based zones, those are the same zones that will give you things like wrong way detection. If something's going the wrong way to be able to trigger again to say, okay, maybe there's a, a, a pencil zoom type camera, uh, in, in an intersection. We have the ability to now say, okay, here's an event taking place in this zone, salute to queue to this location and, and grab the snapshot for verification. So things become now more uh, proactive versus reactive to say, hey, why did something happen at a certain point? So based on, on, on these events and these triggers, ultimately, you, you will find that those are becoming more like a use case specific driver to, to say, okay, if this happens with high accuracy versus, and, and actually that's maybe a good point to, to focus on there, is the level of accuracy that this brings. It makes the system a lot more effective because instead of you sitting now, as an example, in wrong way detection, which was t- traditionally done by cameras, right? You might be at a consistency of about 75% accuracy, 78% accuracy. We've done tests over periods of times or, uh, or periods of, I think about over a year to a year and a half. We sit at an average of 99.98% level of accuracy in detecting a wrong way event. That's a huge difference. And, and what that ultimately means is that now when you're actually receiving these events or these triggers to a city official or to the local uh, law enforcement, that something like that's taken place, they're actually going to respond because it's not a nuisance. They actually know that this is a true event versus a nuisance alarm that they might be receiving. Is there any latency or is this instantaneous? It's instantaneous. It's, it, it happens real time. Uh, it's within milliseconds of, of uh, process by the time they get the information. I need this at the end of my street. There's a stop sign that people do not stop at. And I would like to prove to the local constabulary that they're a hazard. But anyway. Yeah. yeah. And, and the same applies. So, so that was just wrong way as one use case. Now, now you can imagine this. Now let's go to a scenario. Think of this deployed at an intersection level. Now, this intersection where you got 
ball lanes and all sorts of directions are converging. You have problems that might be uh, wrong way driver. You know, there might just be a strange design in this intersection. The driver might drivers might regularly go down the wrong way. You might have a case of there is a university, so you got a lot of pedestrians. You've got the bike lanes, and a mile down the ra- down the road to to the left, you might have a low level bridge that is an overheights issue. So from this one location that we can deploy these sensors and this technology, you can look for the wrong way event. You can look for the conflict zones of the cyclists, pedestrians, and motor vehicleists. You can look for the overheight vehicle that might go to the the bridge uh, half a mile down the road and get a message warning system out to say, okay, you cannot go down here, you're overheight. We've got the potential near-miss data that's going to come from that same system. So now instead of you having multiple detectors solving multiple problems, you have the ability to now use this one detection system to solve all these problems. As well as all this technology is mounted on the road edge versus in the center of the road. So if you think about your existing uh, technologies, say for instance, some of the camera systems or, or so on, they're always in the middle of the road to try and get optimal field of view or really high. This technology able to put on the upright pole next to the road. Serviceability is easy. You're not trenching roads. You're not cutting up roads like you do with ground loops and other detectors. So th- there's a lot of added benefits to to this technology with serviceability and, and how it can actually roll out. Now, there's, there's a ton of data coming in. Let's say right. you have one of these sensors on a pole at an intersection that's very busy. You have all this real-time data coming in. How is it consumed and analyzed? It just seems like a computing nightmare. Very good question. So everything is processed on the edge. Everything is processed on the edge. We process all that raw, what is called point cloud data from the sensor. And all we're outputting is the event data, the data that is required to make the decisions and then to run the analytics on. That becomes from megabytes of data, data to kilobytes of data. And from there, the data can either, because it's being uh, reduced significantly, can actually be pushed to the cloud if you wish. It could be pushed to local TMS at the city level if you wish, or it can just simply stand alone and function as it is at the intersection level or at the roadside level. So where are you collecting the data and storing it? In a device? Uh, on the edge. Yep. Oh, yeah. All happens on the edge. Yeah. Yep. And, and we found that that is very important in today's stage of the ITS because a lot of there's a lot of older legacy and a lot of lack of infrastructure. Not everybody has the luxury of fiber optics to every single intersection. Not every city has the luxury of you know uh, connectivity where they need it. So the, with this flexibility, you also could in, explore the opportunity of maybe leveraging the data over 5G networks. There's a big push for 5G. Obviously, 5G would love you to stream the big amounts of data over the network. But in reality, you've got to find a, a balance. Uh, uh, you know, it's an economy of scale here where you're getting what you need over with as efficiently as possible and as fast and as accurately as possible. So so we've kind of tested, we've ran through all the above scenarios, fiber optic ne- networks on the edge with zero connectivity, over 5G networks, over Wi-Fi, where we just had point-to-point Wi-Fi links. So, so there's a whole lot of different scenarios that have all been tested and the system has been able to function in all those different scenarios. We've even had the processing happening in the cloud, which is not always ideal, but that is also another t- 
test and another, not another test, but another uh, way that we've deployed the system as well. So this is monitored, I would imagine, by someone in a central control room or I guess the various categories of data would go off to dedicated control rooms like, uh, you know, traffic management, uh, EMS. Well, I would assume probably, William, it could be a phone, a tablet, um, depending on the, on the size and the scale of the project. So what we, again, we, we finding so many different flavors. So many cities are at different phases of, of modernization. You, you might find a, a major city like, uh, you know, maybe take Georgia as an example. They've got a big ATMS system where they get everything centrally and they can see the whole big picture of what's happening. They would ingest that data and filter it and they would start adding other pieces of, of, uh, insights into what they receive from that. But then you go to uh, a smaller municipality or city that's, has no desire to care or to look at this other metadata that might be available in the system. All they're looking at doing is optimizing their controllers and reducing the maintenance of trying to take care of loop detectors or, you know, the camera detectors or whatever other detectors might be there in number that they have and rather go down to having just one detector. So we're finding it, it very, very mixed approach. And that's why we've built up and designed the system to be flexible in many ways, allowing that edge processing to be, be done. So we, we found some cities even go just through the thumb drive and plug it in, pull down the data, go back to the office, throw it in an Excel spreadsheet and just kind of look at the counts. That's, that's how basic it can be to full-blown dashboards that give you 15-second or 15-minute increments of flow metering, so it's it's pretty interesting looking at the different ways the cities are actually looking at this this data and how they care about the data. How many cities do you have as clients? So we have deployments worldwide. Um, so our single biggest uh, rollout that's going to be taking place that's already deployed but now scaling up the city of Chattanooga. Um, that's going to be going over. Uh, a whole corridor with a total of about 87 additional, so about a, over 100 intersections once they're completely done. Uh, then we've got deployments in Florida. We've got deployments in uh, the West Coast in California. We've got deployments in the Midwest, Texas, uh, Alabama, Northern Virginia. And then we've got in Austria. We've got deployments in Thailand, Korea, so, and Australia. So we, we've got the points all over in different phases. Some are in still, uh, conceptual data gathering, understanding how they're going to scale this out. Um, and, and that's actually, I would say one of the, the bigger struggle points. Part of our program is to help the cities embrace the technology because it's very easy to go out there and say, you've got to buy this. This is the greatest thing out there. But how do you actually make this happen? And, and we've spent a lot of time with the cities holding their hands, working with them, saying, okay, this is how, you, how we de- create a deployment plan. You know, this is what we, how you would roll this out. This is how you could manage this, how you could uh, maintain this, how you could support this. And that's brought a lot of pieces of the puzzle together for cities because not just the fact of this deployment, but maintaining any technology into a smart city environment. This brought a, 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 
an approach together for us that required us working closer with higher academia, university level. So actually working with universities, with the cities, to hopefully achieve two things, bring talent to those cities that are going to be able to maintain and take care of these systems, also bring interesting topics to potential people to hopefully remain in these cities because if somebody goes and studies something in university and they get excited about technology and that city can offer technology that would interest them, could encourage those individuals to stay in those cities. So we try and work hand, we kind of try and work hand in hand with this whole strategy with the cities of one to try and build talent, keep talent, modernize, present technology to these cities and look at the whole picture of how this can live a long-term life cycle in a city and be f- as future-proofed as possible versus sell a piece of hardware and you've got to rip and replace it in you know 10 years' time with something different. Where is the company located? So we headquartered in, in Seoul, South Korea, and then we, we run our uh, United States operations out of Atlanta, Georgia. We're in Peachtree Corners. Uh, we run at the Curiosity Lab. Uh, and then we have um, our European operations out of uh, uh, Germany, uh, Berlin. That's where uh, our European operations run out of. And how many cities do you have fully deployed and running, completely deployed? So, so kind of like I mentioned a little bit before, that different levels. So if you want to talk about just who's got intersections deployed, fully. we've probably got... We've probably got about, you know, 15, 20 different cities deployed across the globe at different phases. What have the results been? What kind of feedback have you received? So the typical feedback that we're receiving is obviously the level of insights, insights that they never knew were possible, as well as something that's really interesting that we didn't think about initially is there is some cities that have a desire of becoming data revenue driven. This data allows them potentially to actually generate revenue out of it. Because you can imagine if a city invests in this kind of technology throughout their intersection uh, network, and they go to an automaker and say, hey, Mr. Automaker, you want to enhance or advance your autonomous capability or your connected capability, you can subscribe to my data of my intersection. I'll give you pedestrian insights. I'll help you see around the corner. So there is a revenue potential to this. And and we've seen some cities actually have brought that up themselves and say, well, wait a minute, this actually could be an ROI with this technology beyond just you know a a capital outlay. So so that was something interesting that's come to light recently, and and we're kind of excited about it because it kind of brings a, coll- a collaborative effort together even further where. If you can imagine, just going back to one of the autonomous vehicle scenarios, it can't see, depending on where you, what side of the, the world you're driving in, but it might be able to see a blind left or a blind right turn. This technology will allow it to see that. It allow it to see further than what it can see because there's always this desire to try and make a sensor see hundreds of meters for a vehicle. But the, the bottom line is, is that you never really have full hundreds of meters of line of sight unless you're on a highway. Because of obstructions, you know, it could be a trash can, it could be signage, it could be uh, somebody's advertising board. So you, you achieve extended visibility through smart infrastructure that one will make this technology perform better, 
not just even from autonomy level, but from a advanced safety level. So that same thing applies to saying to the city saying, okay, well, wait a minute, if I invest to this technology, are the automators or automotive makers going to be interested in this? And that translates to the V2X possibilities. So in our mind right now, the cities are going to own that data. That's how we're seeing it. The cities own that data. They can do and monetize that if they wish, or just simply make it available if they wish. But you're right. There's a lot of data there that has a lot of value to some, someone or many uh, different entities. This is uh, this is fascinating. I think Grant and I will be watching this very closely to see how it is deployed and the results that come from this new technology. Because God knows, with the congested cities that we have, you talk about Bangkok. That's one city that I oh God, the traffic there is is it's like crazy beyond hell. It's crazy. Yeah. So this uh, this is interesting. Anything that makes things flow more efficiently will make me happy. So <laughs> thank you, William. Good luck with the company. And uh, keep us posted on any future developments. Thank you, William. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. And that is episode number 59. Appreciation to William Muller of Soul Robotics for showing us a new facet of real-time data gathering designed to help cities move smoother. If you have any questions or comments, send them to feedback at thesmartcity.blog and check out the website, thesmartcity.blog. The Smart City Podcast, brought to you by Locomobile World, moving the world through sustainable, frictionless solutions. Executive producer is Grant Furlane. Technical production by Rob Johnston. Executive assistant is Andrea Crawford. I'm Alan Cross, and we'll see you next time.